नमो तगवत अर्हत सबुदास नमो तगवत अर्हत सबुदास नमो तगवत अर्हत सबुदास Welcome friends to this final talk of this retreat. We have been on quite a journey going through these four noble truths. And today we're going to finish off the noble eightfold path. So I want to speak to you at first. Um Bhante Panyaratana mentioned it briefly in his talk yesterday. But the noble eightfold path can be divided into three divisions. There's the sila division, which as Bhante explained yesterday, right speech, right action, right livelihood. There's the wisdom division, which you have right view, right intention. And those two were covered yesterday. Today we're going to cover the concentration division the three pali words are sila samadhi and panya for the observant ones you might have noticed we have that on our office right there outside and so <clears throat> i like to view these three divisions actually as a pyramid the very bottom of that pyramid is our sila practicing living by virtuous principles creates a foundation a strong foundation in bedrock and when we have that foundation we can put the next level of the pyramid on top which is samadhi the practicing right mindfulness right concentration right effort which is what we're going to be going over today and from having that strong base of sila living by virtuous principles this enhances and allows you to strongly develop your samadhi your concentration and when that is and when that happens when you're able to develop your concentration the capstone of the pyramid is wisdom panya right view right intention so this is why this noble eightfold path is extremely important as it works together your sila which is something that is um often either underplayed or or not spoken about um in meditation today is extremely important for your meditation so today we're going to go over the samadhi division and in majjhima nikaya number 44 the english is uh, greater dis- greater questions and answers the bikuni dhammadina who who was um the buddha's foremost bikuni disciple of being able to teach the dhamma she was asked a question 
And the question was, what is concentration? What are its causes? What are its requisites? And what is its development? And so Bhikkhuni Dhammadinna's answer is, unification of mind is concentration. The four frames of reference, or satipatthana, four um, establishments of mindfulness, however you want to uh, translate that, are its causes. And the four right efforts are its requisites. And any cultivation, development, and pursuit of these qualities is its development. And so, these three factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are very, very big. Um, as a matter of fact, just right mindfulness and right concentration, we have our own retreats here, just for those individually, jhana retreat and four foundations of mindfulness retreat. So our task in this talk is to give a, a cursory glance of these factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And first we're going to start with right effort, or samma-vayama. Right effort is, in my opinion, a very underrated part of the path. You don't hear people talk about it much, but it's extremely important. You need some kind of right view to practice this path. Right view is the basis to practice the path. But without the effort, you won't get anywhere in the path. So effort is, uh, the Pali word Vayama is translated as striving, effort, exertion, endeavor. And so what are we putting effort into? What is this right effort? Well, first, I have to talk to you a little bit about the Pali word Anusya. That word um, can mean proclivities or tendencies. Um, I've heard it translated as habitual tendencies, and I rather like that um, because I think it makes sense with the, the practice. And so we have a variety of different habitual tendencies. Three of them we've already gone over. Greed, hatred, and delusion. This is habitual tendencies. And the Buddha says, if one has an underlying tendency, then one is reckoned by it. If one does not have an underlying tendency, then one is not reckoned by it. You can look at that um, phrase just from greed, hatred, and delusion. We all have great he greed, hatred, and delusion, unless there's any arhats in here. You know, if there was, they should be up here. Um, an arhat does not have it cannot, an arahant cannot be reckoned by greed, hatred, and delusion. So, these habitual tendencies, as you'll see, are what we're going to be working with. And I want to, to bring up something Bhante Panya also brought up yesterday. We always tend to bring it up at the same time when we do our talks. That's the first part of the, um, of the uh, Dhammapada. He goes, all actions are led by the mind. Mind is their master, mind is their maker. Actors speak with a defiled state of mind, 
then suffering follows as the cartwheel follows the foot of the ox. And what I think is important there is to understand that simile. A mind that is full of anger and ill will and uh, lust is a mind that's heavy. Yeah? It's like, think about being that poor ox that is lugging this load behind him and then maybe there's a, you know, a, the, the, the driver and he's whipping the ox. <clears throat> and if you've ever carried anything behind you, like on wheels, you might notice that sometimes the wheels nip at your feet. It's not pleasant. And neither is having this heavy burden of a mind filled with greed, hatred, and all these kind of na- these unskillful habitual tendencies. Now there's an opposite to that. Actors speak with a pure state of mind. Then happiness follows you, like your shadow follows you without departing. Your shadow is light. It doesn't weigh anything. It can follow you. As a matter of fact, we don't even pay attention to our shadow. And that's just like a mind where you've let go of these unskillful mental qualities. You have a mind of metta, mind of peace, tranquility. Very light, wonderful mind. So, when we are working with the four right efforts, we are putting in effort to abandon and cut out all unskillful qualities and cultivate skillful qualities. That's it in a nutshell. The first one, Pali word is anupadaya. And basically, the, the way it's translated is for the non-arising of unarisen, unskillful qualities. And you say, well, what does that mean? Basically, you're not going around killing people. Good, don't start. You have, there's qualities, there's unarisen, unskillful qualities. Don't take them on. Don't make them a habit. We're preventing, them, preventing ourselves from making more unskillful qualities a habit. Then there's upadaya, and that's the opposite. That's, we have, um, we want to cultivate skillful qualities, skillful habits that come up. If you, if you develop a skillful habit, good, keep it going. Don't let it go. Develop the skillful habits, develop the skillful tendencies of mind. We want to cultivate these skillful tendencies of mind. Then there's pahanaya, which is abandoning unskillful mental qualities that are already in existence. This is some of the hardest things for us to do. We have these habits, and the the older you get, the older your habits are, (laughs) and the harder to, to reverse them, to let them go. Now, so this is, this is the abandoning of these unskillful qualities that we have. 
And then there's Tutya, which is you already have skillful qualities. Good. Don't lose them. Maintain them. Abide in them. Keep them going. So this is this fourfold effort. This is what we do when we practice our sila. This is what we do when we practice our meditation. Whatever we're doing in this noble eightfold path, this is what we're doing. We're practicing these four efforts. We want to, instead of doing unskillful actions, do skillful actions. That's our sila. We want to cleanse our mind of unskillful mental tendencies. That is our bhavana, our cultivation. Okay. So, there's two suttas that I highly, highly suggest. And these are some of the most practical words of the Buddha you're going to find in the Nikayas. Samajama Nikaya number 19 and 20, right next to each other. 19 is two kinds of thought. 20 is the, um, oh, what is it? A removal of distracting thoughts. The first time I read number 19, it blew me away. It was just a, whoa. It was just amazing to me. And the Buddha is talking about when he was, before he was an awakened being, when he was a bodhisattva, he decided, well, why don't I put my thoughts into two kinds. I'll put thoughts of wrong intention on one kind. Thoughts of, this is thoughts of greed, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming. Put thoughts of right intention on the other. Thoughts of renunciation, of letting go. Thoughts of goodwill, metta. Thoughts of non-harming. So he's literally working with his thoughts as they come up. And he is dividing them. He's, he's being aware that this is a thought <clears throat> that is wrong intention or right intention. And you can do this. I, it was, after I read this sutta, I started doing this. And I still do it to this day. You know, it, it takes mindfulness to really be able to be aware of your thoughts and to say, and all you have to do is just identify this. This thought is no good, or this thought is a beneficial thought. And so he goes on and he says, um, as I abided, mindful, ardent, resolute, I noticed that a thought of wrong intention arose in me. And as I understood and acknowledged this that this arose and I understood that it was for my harm and the harm of others it subsided and when you actually do that with your mind for the most part all it does all it needs is for you to just be aware of that and it'll go away Now that's not always the case but in the suttas, there's a whole, um, there's all different sections where there's monks and nuns who are meditating, and Mara comes and tempts them, and they say, I see you, Mara. And then it says, Mara is sad and dejected and goes away. 
that, that, that remind, when I first read this and when I first watched this in my mind, this is what I thought of. It's like you're saying, I see you, Mara, and then it goes away. And so then the opposite was, I saw, I, as I was abiding, resolute, etc., etc., I saw my, this thought arose. It led to my benefit, to the benefit of others. And I abided in it. And I saw no danger in it whatsoever, even if I thought this for a day and a night. And so one of the, the, the best quotes from this is the, where he says, um, I'm trying to remember the exact wording of it. Uh, let's see. Whatever somebody frequently ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. So that's a, a very, very important sutta. And it's something very practical that you can do um, in your daily life, whatever you're doing, whether you're at work, at home, wherever you're able to see your thoughts arise. And so um, the next sutta, the removal of distracting thoughts, is pretty much for when the first time doesn't work, <laughs> when the thoughts are there and they're not going away. <clears throat> and so he talks about, uh, he gives, uh, Buddha gives five methods on how to work with this. The first one is to replace the thought. Try to replace, if you have a thought of ill will, try to replace it with goodwill. If that doesn't work, you want to examine the danger. Like I said the other day at the Q&A, uh, the gratification, danger, and the escape. You're examining the danger of having this thought. This anger, what is it going to do? And not only is it going to make my, my mind heavy and without rest, <clears throat> there's a chance that I can, this anger will leach out into my, ver my words and my physical actions. You know, examining the danger. If you can't do that, then you try to ignore and forget about it. If that doesn't work, then you examine the cause. Try to really look at where this thought is coming from, why it has arisen. And if that doesn't work, you have the fifth one which is an interesting thing. It's to crush the unskillful mind with a skillful mind. And it's described like you go like this, you clench your teeth, <clears throat> and you try to crush, <laughs> crush it out of your mind. That's an interesting last one. There's not much to say about that. <clears throat> but I, I will say, if you read the suttas, you see that the Buddha, he understands the danger of having a mind of ill will. He understands the danger of having um, a mind of, extreme attachment and, and aversion and how that carries on into the future. So for him, in, in a way, it's better to, to die with a mind of goodwill than to keep living with a mind of ill will. <clears throat> he doesn't play when it comes to this kind of stuff. Okay. And so I like to um, think of my thoughts often as like a campfire. If you're around a campfire, if you, if you ever maintained a fire, you know you, kind of, you get out what you put in. So whatever you allow into your mind is what you're going to get out. So you want to feed your fire with good things that will lead to the benefit of yourself and others, not with negative, unskillful things that will lead to harm.
And so the, uh, <clears throat> the Buddha, when he's talking about somebody, uh, a meditator, and, and exhorting them to go and to, to practice, he says, he, um, there's three adjectives. I call them the Buddha's adjectives that you'll see most often. It's diligent, ardent, and resolute. The Buddha's definition for diligent was guarding your mind from unskillful mind states. That's right effort. That's number 19. Guarding your mind from unskillful mind states. And uh, indeed, there's, you know, the, the Buddha says that whatever, whatever wholesome qualities arise, their chief is diligence. All wholesome qualities come from diligence. And if you've heard the elephant's footprint um, simile before in relation to the Four Noble, the four noble Truths, he uses that, fo- that elephant's footprint simile many times. And so one of them is that all wholesome qualities, all wholesome practices fit in diligence, just like all the, you know, the footprints of all mammals fit into the elephant. Because diligent, it, diligence is chief among them. So being diligent is extremely important. And of course, you know, ardent is being very passionate and dedicated, resolute, being dedicated. So you want to be diligent, ardent, and resolute in your practice. But there's a trick to that. There's something to be wary of. And you can find that in what's called the Sona, S-O-N-A, Sutta. And in this Sutta, there is um, a bhikkhu, and he's practicing really hard. And he's walking and his feet are bleeding and all these kind of things. He's really practicing hard. And then he thinks, well, you know, of all the Buddhist disciples who practice hard, I'm one of them. I practice really hard, but I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe I'll just go back and, you know, to lay life and enjoy my family's wealth and all this kind of stuff. And so the Buddha comes to him and he says, did you say this? And he says, yes, Bhante, I did say that. And he says, Suppose, Asona, when you were a layperson, were you skilled at playing the, um, the vena? And the vena, the, actually, the first time I told this, I looked it up. It's an interesting ancient, um, it's kind of, cro- of a cross between a harp and a violin. It's an interesting um, uh, musical device. But, so it's a stringed uh, instrument. And, you know, Sona says, yes, I was. And he says, and so the Buddha says, when you were tuning your vina, when it was too tight, was it in tune and playable? And he says, no, Bhante. When it was too loose, was it in tune and playable? And he says, no. And so then the Buddha says, just so, pick up your theme and practice in that way. What the Buddha is saying is that, yes, there is such a thing as putting too much effort. There is such a thing as doing too much. And as a matter of fact, the diligence can be best understood as a balanced but sustained effort. Sustained means, you know, this, is, uh, this practice is part of your life. You're not going to stop doing it, but sometimes... Maybe you need to be kind to yourself, to 
you know, know when you're doing too much. Because there is such a thing as doing too much. And even in number 19, <clears throat> there's a section where the Buddha says, where he's talking about his mind and he says, and I know that if I strain my mind too much, I will have lots of restlessness. Well, that's my summary of it. I don't remember the exact words. And so I let my mind be at peace, basically. So even the Buddha, is an awakened being, is understanding that he can make his mind too restless and too, um, well, not restless, but too exhausted. That might be a better word. Um, just like even an awakened being can have an exhausted body. Okay. So what I like to say is that meditators need true grit and self-compassion. You both need this, the, the grit to, to really do the practice, but also the compassion and the wisdom to know how to find your balance in the practice as well. So that's right effort. The next step is right mindfulness or samasati. And so if you, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is where this is from, which is Manjaminikaya number 10, I highly suggest that you read this. You can understand the full, um, you know, the full wording and the full breadth of this sutta. I, we don't have time to do that here. But the Buddha says that this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, and pain, and grief, for the attaining of Nibbana. So this is very, very important to understand and to practice. And you can understand, I believe you can, un, you can understand both the Noble Eightfold Path itself as a, as a toolbox of how to live, but also these four Satipatthana as a toolbox as well. This is how you practice, how you diligently practice. And so the Buddha goes on, he says, what is right mindfulness? Here, a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed attachment and aversion for the world. So you see that ardent, mindful, right? You see these words, these same words over and over again as the Buddha exhorts us. And so there's four satipatthana. Right? The first one is body. So what does body in body mean? Well, that depends on which teacher you're learning from. <laughs> you know, the the satipatthana is um, translated and understood differently in many different ways. Um, some have said this is just the body in and of itself, so that you are examining the body through these methods that I'm going to go over and trying to understand the body in and of itself. And some understand body in body as understanding these various different types of and kinds of body within the body. It can get confusing, but... But it might help to elucidate when we, um, when we go through. So there's six practices under this understanding body and body. The first one is 
anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing. And you start out anapanasati, just as I've been doing in the guided meditations. Starting out, understanding, breathing in, breathing out. Starting at, and then going from understanding, breathing in long, breathing in short, and so on. There's 16 steps. I'm not going to go over them there. You can look at them. If you look, Anapanasati Sutta is Majjhimanikaya number 118. So it's a very important um, directions, instructions for mindfulness of breathing. So the next is understanding the four postures. So this is a, a person knows when they are sitting, when they are standing, when they are walking, when they are laying down. You've, you're clearly understanding and knowing that you're in these various postures in your body. Next is clear awareness. And this is similar in that you are acting in clear awareness when you're walking, sitting, standing, lying down, stretching your limbs, um, eating, even it says going to the bathroom. You're being aware. You're being clear, having clear awareness and understanding of what you're doing. Instead of, you know, taking your cell phone into the bathroom or taking your cell phone with you and you're going like this, <laughs> distracting yourself. Next time, try to leave the cell phone out. <laughs> Practice clear awareness. And so next is um, Asubha meditation. This is practicing the 32 parts of the body. And this is a practice that is, can be good for strong lust um, you know, to work on the strong lust, but it's also good for just understanding and having an equanimous view of the body. When you practice this, subha means beautiful. Asubha means not beautiful. So often you hear this translated as revulsion towards the body or all these kind of things. Like you're supposed to understand the body and like throw up because you know you see the body. I, I don't think that that is skillful. I don't think that that necessarily helps. Um, I think that when you understand, when you practice this, you understand what this body is. You're, you're, we have an enchantment with the body. We have an enchantment with our body. We're like, oh, I'm strong. Or, oh, I'm, I, my face is nice and all these kind of things. Or, oh, I like that person. They have a rounded face and all these kind of things. We have all these attachments and, and enchantments. <clears throat> and this practice breaks through that. You're understanding what this body is. And really this body is a biological machine. And when I do this practice, I had an insight come to me where I had this vision of my body basically coming out into thousands of pieces. Not like exploding, but if you really examine it, if you understand your body, there's thousands and thousands of pieces that all work together to create this body and, to, and for this body to do what it does. It's absolutely amazing when you really think about it. So that's what this practice is. But the, officially, you're, you're understanding 32 parts of the body. Head, hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, you know, liver, phlegm, all this kind of stuff. You can see those, for those 30 parts, 31 parts. The next is the four elements. Understanding the body in, in relation to Earth, wind, water, and fire. And so earth is the, in that you're understanding earth as 
the um, understanding Earth as the solidity, you know, the solid parts, the solid aspects. Water as the um, water as the liquid aspects or the flowing aspects. Uh, wind as air, gas, and fire is temperature. So you're understanding this in relation to the body. And then the last one is charnel ground contemplation, where back in the Buddha's day, the Buddha exhorted monks to, and nuns to go out to what's called charnel grounds, where bodies would be left to rot. And so you could go there and you can just meditate on bodies in various stages of decay. And so this is what this does. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a visualization, because the Buddha says, just as if you were observing a body that was three days dead, and it goes through you know, a body that's bloated, and it goes a, a skeleton with blood and sinews, a skeleton, and then it basically goes from a body that's just dead to a body that's bleached and scattered and thrown across the winds. So you're understanding the nature of the body in this regard. So you're using these different techniques to come to a full understanding of the body. And after each section, the Buddha also goes into, under, um, there's a, a little end part where he says, you're understanding this body internally and externally. And so external people debate on that. It could mean the, the, ex, the external parts of your body. It could also mean other people's bodies. Um, people have different um, translations to that and understandings. And you're understanding the arising and the falling. So you're understanding that the impermanence of the body and all of these parts and, and, and all of these aspects. So the next one is feelings and feelings. And when we're talking about feeling, we're talking about, um, we're talking about what you would call the hedonic tone. So you're understanding pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither pleasant nor painful feelings or neutral. So you're examining these feelings. And the way, there's two divisions on how you examine the feelings, either of the body or not of the body. So these are often, the, the feelings not of the body are often understood as um, you know, mental feelings, feelings related to uh, spiritual feelings, uh, related to um, high states of concentration, that kind of stuff. So you're understanding, you know, these three, pleasant, painful, or neutral, in relation to of the body or not of the body. Next is mind in mind. And so, actually, Bhante Panya explained this yesterday. You're understanding, you're, you're watching the feeling tone of the mind. Or not the feeling tone, the well, the general tone of the mind, I should say. You understand a mind with greed is a mind with greed. A mind without greed is a mind without greed. Same thing for hatred, delusion, contracted mind. A contracted mind is a mind with sloth and torpor, like, you know, drowsy, about to fall into the abyss to get to sleep, and then distracted with restlessness and worry. A surpassed mind and an unsurpassed mind Developed mind, undeveloped mind. Uh, liberated mind, unliberated mind. So you're just examining the nonverbal tone of your mind. What is 
What's going on in there? What is your mind? What is in your mind right then and there? And then the last one is um, now the the Pali is examining dhammas in dhammas. Um, that's translated as phenomena in phenomena. Sometimes people have translated it as mind objects in mind objects. Um, and this is actually one of the more debated um, of the four in terms of what you're supposed to be studying and, and, and examining in this. Um, and the, uh, the, one, the, the, one, the way it's uh, taught that I'm going to explain is in that you are examining the phenomena, you're examining your experience in relation to these dhammas that the Buddha has explained to us. And so what are these? The five hindrances. So you're examining your experiences in relation to sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. You're examining your experiences in relation to those. You're examining your experience in relation to the five aggregates, form, feeling, mental form of perception, volitions, consciousness. You're examining your experience within in relation to the six senses. The eye forms, eye consciousness. You know, you're understanding your experiences in relation to this. You're also understanding your experiences in relation to the seven factors of awakening that we went over the other day. And finally, you're understanding your experiences in relation to, you're understanding Dhamma in relation to the Four Noble Truths. So that is, um, in brief, very brief, the four no, the um, Satipatthana. Again, this is a very, very, very long sutta, and I highly suggest looking at the sutta um, to really get a more detailed um, understanding of it. But this is what the Buddha explains as right mindfulness, doing these practices. Um, some teachers will say you choose one. Like today I want to examine feeling and feeling. And then you just concentrate on examining your feeling. Some people um, will say that you <clears throat> try to examine your experience, like, uh, something that comes up, an itch, per se. You know, you examine how the itch is in relation to your body. And then you have feeling that comes in. Is it pleasant? It's unpleasant. You have intentions. What do you want to do with the itch? You know, what's going on and what does the itch do to your mind? So you're examining a specific experience related to all of those, um, the four satipatthana. So my suggestion would be to try both and see what works for you in that regard. Okay. And so there's a, an, an interesting simile. Um, the simile is called the, the beauty queen. And so the, this, the Buddha gives this simile and he says, um, suppose there was this beauty queen that, would, that came to the town and she was very beautiful and she sung very well and she danced very well and she enraptured the crowd and there was lots of people around and somebody came up to you. and <laughs> So basically this, this person has to carry this pot of oil on their head while somebody else is behind them with a sword. And... You have to go through this crowd. So he's, the Buddha is saying, 
and then uh, you must go through the crowd without dropping a drop of oil. And if you drop a drop of oil, right then and there you get your head cut off. So the Buddha says then, would you drop your mindfulness at any second in, in that situation? <laughs> no, because you want to live. So he says, just like that, that is how you practice. Just as if you had to carry oil on your head and there was somebody with a sword behind you ready to <laughs> chop your head off. <sighs> okay. And so, <laughs> and so we come to Samma Samadhi, right concentration. And the Buddha says, practice concentration, develop it. One who develops concentration understands things as they really are. Normally when we hear that, we think of like Vipassana. Oh, in Vipassana, we're understanding things as what they really are. What does this mean? What does this mean that you, when you concentrate, you understand things as they really are? And we'll get into that. And so the Buddha also says, purification depends on concentration. The ending of the defilements depends on jhana. It's pretty, wow, so we understand how important concentration is. And so the Buddha says to, to use another Ganges simile, just as the Ganges River flows to the east, so one who practices jhana flows towards Nibbana. So this is the importance of practicing jhana. And the reason why it is important is because concentration allows us to see more deeply than we ever could before. We can gain insight normally. We can gain insight actually outside of concentration. As a matter of fact, in the suttas, it's very rare, and the Buddha says it's very hard, but there are people who became awakened just by, um, without concentration, just by like the four satipatthana. Um, but the Buddha doesn't recommend that. He says it's very, very hard. Um, the Buddha always recommends, if you read the suttas, over and over and over and over and over again, he, Buddha's talking jhana. He's talking concentration. Because this is how you see things, how they really are. And so how does this work? Um, <clears throat> so the, the word samadhi uh, is, again, one of those things that's translated in different ways. When you, hear, when you see the word concentration, most likely that's the, that's the most common translation of samadhi, concentration. Um, looked, it looked at through the, the roots, and grammatically, um, you could understand it as collectedness, things that are coming together, a, col a collectedness, or being collected. And others translate it as stillness. So there's a couple of different ways that you can understand this. And the Buddha talks about not only just concentration, but noble right concentration. What is noble right concentration? If you come to the Ajana retreat, you'll see Bhanteji will say, there is wrong jhana and there is right jhana. <laughs> so there, there, you can be trapped in wrong jhana. 
And so, but noble right concentration is jhana, is right concentration supported by all of the other factors of the noble eightfold path. So it's here where these factors are coming together to support this concentration and allowing us to develop vipassana. Vipassana, now it's considered a, a technique, but really vipassana is, it means to see through, to see deeply, to understand deeply. And that's what concentration, deep concentration allows us to do. More so than when we're not concentrated. So that is why we practice this concentration. And so, um, again, the, I'm going to go through the four jhanas, but I'm going to go through them very briefly. Um, you know, we don't have time to go through them in detail. You can come back in either June or July and attend the, the seven days of, of jhana with Bhanteji. But um, so, uh, Buddha says, now what is right concentration? Here, secluded from sensual pleasures. That's the first thing. What are sensual pleasures? The five cords of sensual pleasures. So just for a brief time, you've cut the cords. You're not the puppet of the, of the sensual pleasures at that point. A brief time, you've subdued and you've cut the cords. You are secluded from them. Secluded from unwholesome states. That's the five hindrances. For a brief time, you've cut off the hindrances. You haven't done it permanently. That is when you are, the hindrances are, are defilements and we cut the defilements. That's, when, that's the end. But we, this is a temporary suppression of sensual pleasures and the, um, and, uh, the hindrances. So. Abhigu enters and dwells in the first jhana which is accompanied by thought and examination. This is vitaka and vichara. And you can understand um, vitaka as wholesome thoughts, wholesome intention. And indeed, you can understand jhanas itself as a consolidation of wholesome mental states. You're not going to get into jhanas if you have your minds full of ill will and anger and negativity. As a matter of fact, you can't. You can't force yourself into jhana. It actually comes when you set the groundwork. Setting the groundwork is working on sensual pleasures and the five hindrances. When, you're able, when you've worked on the groundwork enough where you're able to subdue those, jhana comes on its own. Concentration comes. And so, and in, this has rapture and happiness. That's piti and sukha born of seclusion. So for the f first time in your life, you have your hindrances are gone. There's no, there's no cords attached to you. And it's so a happiness, a lightness. Ah. And you have this piti, this rapture that is a pleasurable, pleasurable feelings from the mind. This is not pleasurable feeling that is understood from sensuality. This comes directly from the mind itself. And so, as you practice the first jhana, 
and you master it and you, um, you start to actually seek for more refined concentration and you naturally slip into the second jhana. And in the second jhana, it says, the subsiding of thought and examination. Here's our noble silence. Thought and examination are gone. Noble silence. They have subsided because they're very gross. They're very gross forms of mental activity. And we're moving towards ever finer forms of mental activity. He enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal confidence. This is a confidence that you've been able to get to this far in the practice and you've developed confidence like in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and, and your own ability to do this practice and these kind of things. So, and unification of mind. So when you say unification of mind, this is <clears throat> the strong concentration of mind on the object. So where your mind is unified on that object. Is without thought and examination and has rapture and happiness born of concentration. So rapture and happiness are still there as you become more deeply concentrated. And so you practice this jhana and you develop it and you master it and these factors begin to be very gross factors again. You're, looking, you're going towards more fine um, aspects of concentration. And so you go to the third jhana. With the fading away as well of rapture, Rapture is too gross. We're moving towards fine. He dwells equanimous and mindful and clearly comprehending. He experiences happiness with the body. So this happiness, this contentment, this, this feeling that you know, you're secluded and you're, you have these less and less of a burden of gross mental activity is, is upon you. You're getting finer, deeper, more concentrated. So you still have this happiness, this sukha. He experiences happiness with the body. He enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare he is equanimous, mindful, one who dwells happily. And then the fourth jhana. Again, we're moving towards ever finer states of mental concentration with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and displeasure. He enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither plainful nor pleasant, and includes the purification of mindfulness by equanimity. This is called right concentration. So at this fourth jhana, this is where you have this purification of mindfulness. At this fourth jhana, this is where you are able to really see and understand at the deepest, most concentrated levels. You understand what? Vipassana, seeing deeply, is understanding the three characteristics of existence. All conditioned things are impermanent. Anicca, they're dukkha. They're unsatisfactory, suffering, however you want to translate it. And they're anatta, they're not self. That is vipassana. <clears throat> when you see <clears throat> those three characteristics, 
in your experience, you develop wisdom. And so that is how concentration allows us to, tra- to point our mind, to see the nature of our minds and the nature of existence without any clutter, pain, pleasure, it's all gone. Equanimity. A mind that is calm, stable, not brought here and there by likes and dislikes, pain and pleasure. And in that stillness, you can see, you can understand and see insight. So that is why concentration is so important and why the Buddha speaks about concentration and practicing this um, you know, these methods in these earliest Buddhist texts is because they allow us, we could, we could do it the hard way, but the Buddha says, this is the best way. Do this, practice jhana. Over there is the, you know, the, the root of trees. Over there, forest, an abandoned hunt. Practice jhana. So I want to end with one of my favorite quotes from the suttas. It says, get up, sit up. What's your need for sleep? What rest is there for those afflicted by the arrow? You can see that as the arrow of craving, the arrow of dukkha, all to connect it in that regard. So the next line is, get up, sit up. Train hard for peace. Do not let Mara know that you are heedless, deluded, and under his control. Train hard. But remember, be in tune with your practice. Find that tune. Find that the way you, you can do your practice so that you can practice these factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and eventually gain your freedom. Thank you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, take a break and come back for meditation. <laughs>